0: Welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. We're going to continue our series this morning on the book of Ruth called No Ordinary Family. Who's enjoyed the series so far? Learned something? Excellent. Good, 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 good. We're up to part five, believe it or not. We've been doing this series morning and evening and uh, I've been blessed. I've been blessed preaching this, I've been blessed preparing for this, I've been blessed sitting there listening to others share from the book of Ruth. Just to fill you in very quickly, Ruth and the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth was written about 3,000 years ago. The author is unknown, although some would say it's the prophet Samuel and it was written at one of the lowest and darkest points in Israel's history and it was in the time of the judges where there were no kings. And unfortunately, people did what they saw fit. It's amazing when you have no king in your life, people do what they see fit. When you don't have Jesus as king in your life, you do your own thing. But when Jesus is king of your life, he governs your life. He rules your life. You bow down to him. You say, yes, sir, no, sir, to his will, his word and his ways. But without that king, you do whatever you want. And this is what Israel were doing at that time. The story of Zeus, uh, Zeus, the story of Ruth zooms in to the family of Elimelech and a man who was married to a woman by the name of Naomi, and they had two sons, and they lived in Bethlehem. And at that time, Bethlehem, although it means house of bread, was by stark contrast in famine. And so he made an unwise decision to move from his hometown Bethlehem to a place of foreign gods, to a place called. Moab. It sounded wise, it sounded courageous, it even seemed right to him. However, it proved to be disastrous and fatal. Within a short time, Elimelech, the father and husband, was dead. Naomi raised her two sons, and they did what was forbidden, and they married two Moabites women. And one of those named was Orpah, the other was named Ruth. They stayed there for 10 years, and in that 10-year period, Naomi's two sons also die. Naomi is left in a foreign land with foreign gods with two daughters-in-law. After 10 years she realises that the famine has lifted from the hometown of Bethlehem so she decides to go back Home. We talked a lot about that last week. On her way home, she looked at the girls and said, you know what, girls, I appreciate your commitment to me, but you know what, there's nothing for you back in Bethlehem. Go back to your hometown of Moab. Orpah thought that's a great idea. She was gone. Ruth, however, had this ruthless commitment to Naomi and she cleaved, she clung. She would not let go of Naomi. And so Naomi and Ruth do the 50 mile journey from Moab to Bethlehem. And there they confront and face all their friends and family members. And Naomi had to humble herself. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore because Naomi means sweet and pleasant. I am not sweet. And I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. And we looked at being bitter to better last week. And then last Sunday night, we heard from Seth who started talking about the providence of God because it was in and around that time. It's amazing when you return home. It's amazing when you get around the people who know you best. It's amazing when you get around the people that know your past and you can deal with your past, that things begin to change for the better for you. And we see that for Ruth and Naomi. Things begun to change and swing around because of the providence and the favour and the blessing Of God, which brings me to part five, which I've entitled Modeling Manhood. Modeling Manhood. For every man in this place, you need to take a leaf out of Boaz's life. Ladies, don't turn off. I want you to listen up today and I want you to look at these qualities. I want you to look for these qualities in your man or in the man that you're looking for at present. Okay, Ruth chapter 2, verse 4 says, Just then Boaz, or to quote, says, Boaz, <laughs> arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they cried back. Boaz answered the foreman of his harvesters, Who's that young woman? The foreman replied, She is a Moabites who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field and don't go away from here. Stay with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men are filled. At this she bowed down with a face to the ground and she exclaimed, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of her hus- your husband, for how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant. Though I do not have the standing Of one of your servant girls. This morning, I want to look at a man. This man's name is Boaz. Although the book is named Ruth, to me, this story is not so much about a girl as about this man, Boaz. The central character of this book, really, for me, is this man, Boaz. The word Boaz simply means valour. He was a man of valour. What do we know from reading the scriptures? That he was a prominent man. He was a wealthy man. He was a strong man. He was a single man. And he was a godly man. And the reason I want to focus in on him today is because he's an incredible example for us to follow. In actual fact, for those of you who love typology, he's a type of Christ. He's a type of the, an Old Testament Christ. And we can do well to learn from this man's life. Not only that, just in a practical sense, he's a great model to follow. And I want to look at four areas of this man's life that I think we should look out for and model. Some of the things that he modeled, number one, is worship at his work. He modelled worship at his work. He walks into his field that he owns and gets amongst those that he's employed. And he says this, the Lord be with you. In other words, he doesn't just keep his worship of Jehovah to the Sabbath. He takes his God to work. He takes his God with him. And he doesn't. you don't see Boaz carrying on like all the workers and swearing and carrying on. So you don't even know the description. No, he's loud and he's proud about his relationship with God. And he says, the Lord be with you. I love the Lord. And he's saying, I don't want anyone else to feel ashamed or embarrassed of my relationship with God. I've said that to say this. Don't leave your faith in church. Probably one of the greatest issues as a church we face is not how to sing. It's not when to say amen in the right place on a Sunday. It's taking what we've learned and applying it in the Monday to Saturday realm of our week. Christians traditionally have not been good at this. We're great at saying amen. We're great at singing. We're great at raising our hands. We're great at doing the church thing, but we're not good at doing the church thing in our world. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave. Now that may not be our reality that we personally are gonna touch the whole world, but we can touch our world. Do you love your world enough to bring a little bit of God into your world? whatever your world may be. Oh, we hear too often that, you know, my workplace, I'm the only Christian. Fantastic, bring the little bit of Christianity that you have into your world. Don't leave your faith on the shelf. Boaz was a man who knew how to mix his worship with his work. As a leadership team, we had the privilege of going away. The reason we do that is because to get the concentrated effort that we need to accomplish what we've just set out to do, it's just great at times to get away. And we were able to get away up the river. And on one particular night, we had this campfire going. And this guy drives up and he wants to do a bit of fishing. And, and he's got his dog with him. And, and so we get to talking to him, which is fine. And then pretty soon before we know it, he's sitting around the campfire. And we're just laughing and having fun and we're having fun, and we're laughing. But we are just talking about God and church at the same time. He, knows, he gets the deal. We, we told him the deal. He knows, we're he knows that we're church. He knows that we're church leaders. And it was messing with his head. And so we start playing charades. And we say, hey Rob, do you want to play charades? And he goes, no way. Not gonna do that. But he was curious. And he kept watching. And so we're laughing and joking, doing the, you know. And we're laughing and we're joking and And then he goes, Well, oh, we've got one. And so he does one and we I didn't quite get it but he was pointing guns at me and I was getting scared like... and we're laughing and we're joking and we're carrying on and then he sits down and we, were, we just lost it we were just laughing and having a great time and he was there with his bourbon and coke sucking that down fagging on a cigarette and he's looking at us and there's, there's no alcohol in sight because we had it hidden away <laughs> no <laughs> No, no alcohol, no drugs. And he's sitting there with his drink and his smoking. What are you guys on? What are you guys on? And he knew who we were. And he knew what we were about. And it messed with his head. Pete got talking to him later because he stayed out fishing with him. He mentioned how he comes down to Adelaide and Pete said, Why don't you come to church? And so we're hoping to see this man come to church tonight, next Sunday, the Sunday after, a year from now. Sometime. Sometime. But imagine if we just carried on with all the swearing and all the, all the stuff. It would have been no difference. It messed with his head. Which brings me to this point. Boaz's workers didn't seem to mind. Boaz said, the Lord bless you. And they say, the Lord bless you. And our newfound friend up the river didn't seem to mind at all that we were Christians. He actually wanted to know what our deal was. I think we can win some major ground if we don't compromise our Christian values or beliefs. But we can seem to be having fun while keeping intact Christian virtues and values. Boaz was a man who took his worship to work and I think we can learn from that. Secondly, he modelled wisdom with his wealth. We see that he was a wealthy business owner but at the same time as owning much, he felt much responsibility, in particular for the poor and those that were less fortunate than him. He genuinely cared for the less fortunate and the poor. We know that because of a number of things, but one is that he practiced the discipline of gleaning. Now, gleaning was where the harvested, harvest, harvesters would, would intentionally leave a portion of the field that the poor could come. And it was kind of like a, an early day working for the dole scheme. They didn't pick it for them and just give it out and make it too easy. They said, if you you want something, there's something for everyone. If you're willing to work, there's something for you. No one needs to be poor. There's something. And so they would leave portions of the harvest for the poor to come along, to pick for themselves. And so he was wise with his wealth. He didn't just make it all about him. See, when it comes to money, The church get real funny when it comes to money. Have you noticed that? But we make it an issue of rich and poor. And what's your policy when it comes to the rich? And what's your policy when it comes to the poor? And what's your policy on this? And what's your policy on that? The Bible doesn't talk in terms of rich or poor when it comes to money. The Bible talks in terms of righteous and unrighteous when it comes to money. And so it's possible to have money and be righteous. It doesn't mean because you've got money that you are of the devil. It doesn't mean you've done something wrong just because you are a Christian and you have wealth. It doesn't mean that you're ripping off the taxes, etc. You can actually be a righteous man and have lots of money. Boaz was one of them. But it's also possible to have a lot of money and be unrighteous. Jesus was confronted by a rich young man. And he came to Jesus and said, What must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, Actually, you know what? You know, give away all your money. He went away sad. He had money, but he wasn't righteous with the money that he'd earned. He had ulterior motives. And so it's possible to be wealthy and righteous and wealthy and unrighteous. And that's an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of your bank balance. It's an issue of the heart. So if you're a little less fortunate than others, don't make it your call in life to make people who have more money than you feel uncomfortable or feel bad because they have a few more things than you do. That is not your call. God has not called you to be the watchdog of all rich people. Can I say this when it comes to the poor? Just because you're poor, it doesn't make you a super Christian. Because it's possible to be poor and righteous. Jesus was the most righteous man who ever lived, and yet he lived in poverty by choice. But you can also be poor and unrighteous. Just because you don't have money doesn't mean you're not always thinking about money. In fact, some of the poorest people I know are more consumed with money than some rich people. It's an issue of the heart. And I think when it comes to the heart, God's put a little principle in place to test our heart every week through the tithe. One of the things that keeps my heart in check when it comes to my finances is what will I do with the first fruit of my income? What's the first thing I'm going to do with my money? That's going to test my heart. And so for me, tithing is not Old Testament or New Testament. Tithing for me is an issue of the heart. And it gives the opportunity for me to test myself every week, fortnight or month that I get paid. But what I'm going to do with my money first. Because let's be honest, the first thing you do with anything is the thing that's the biggest priority. Isn't it? And so I would encourage you as Christians in this place to practice the discipline of giving a certain portion of your income to God. Before you do anything else, before you pay tax, before you buy anything, just give to God. I don't know if parents you can identify with this, but have you ever bought your kids fast food? You've taken them through the drive thru, you're not really hungry, but by the time that food comes through the window, you get a whiff of it and think, oh, I wasn't hungry before, but I wouldn't mind one of those chips that I've just bought for my kids. And so, as, as the father of my kids, I look at them and say, hey, is it possible to have a chip? And to be greeted with, no, they're mine. For me is ridiculous. I mean what those chips that I just bought are now all yours. The chips you wouldn't have if I didn't graciously and generously give to you. You getting it? Everything we have belongs from God. Everything we have comes from God. For us to say, I'm not gonna give is really an issue with the heart. It's not an issue of the old covenant. It's not an issue of the new covenant. It's an issue of the heart that we can get so bogged down with what's mine that we forget God gave it to us. So please, let's not talk in terms of rich or poor or whether I can afford or can't afford. Let's look in terms of righteous and unrighteous. And I think the righteous thing to do The right thing to do is to honour God first in everything that we do, including our finances. We see that in the life of Boaz. Thirdly, the thing that he models to us is love without lust. Oh, I need every young man to listen up. I need every older man to listen up. I need every single man to listen up. I need every married man to listen up. Love without lust. He gets into his field. He's a single man. And he says, who's that woman? There's many reasons he may have said, who's that woman? But whatever the reason, she caught his eye. And the first thing someone says, she said, I oh, don't want to mess around with her. She's from Moab. She's from the wrong side of the track. You don't want to mess around with that woman. And so here she is. She's dirty and she's sweaty. She's not a Hebrew. She's not a virgin. She's been married before. She's not from a good family. She's not a seasoned worshiper of God. She's not well off. Yet, it's quite possible that Boaz fell in love with her at first sight. Why? Listen up. I believe he fell in love with her because he had an eye for real beauty. Boaz was a man's man and had an eye for real beauty. What did he see? He saw her character. Not only was the advice given that she's from Moab, but the foreman did so, but she is a hard worker. She has been here from morning till noon with the exception of one small rest. She's worked hard all day. She's not here just for a handout. She's not here doing nothing, begging. She's making the most of the opportunity we've given her through the principle of gleaning. Do you know here in Australia, $300 million is spent every year on cosmetic surgery? Lipstick and makeup is easy to put on. Character takes a lot longer. Boaz had an eye for character. He got to see her at her worst and yet he saw her at her best. And he was attracted to her. Young lady, if we spent more time on our character than our makeup and our hair and our nails and our waxing and our shaving and our whatever else it is that you do, which I'm not against. Some people often ask me, is it okay to wear makeup? I look at some ladies and say, yes, you should wear makeup. But none of that, none of that, none of that is an excuse to not work on our character. You've got to work on your character. See, I, I don't believe in the doll. I don't. There should not be a Christian in this place who's on the doll that isn't volunteering their time somewhere. The Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. We live in an incredibly blessed nation which actually is working against us to some degree. Where we just hand out, hand out. And what we do, we develop a handout mentality. I don't think Boaz would have been attracted to this woman if she was just sitting there begging, doing nothing. But he saw the initiative. He saw the hard work. He saw the effort. And then he tied it back to the actually, she doesn't have to be doing this, she's doing this for a mother in law. She's actually at the moment quite bitter and hurt. And he was attracted to her. I love outward beauty and that in and of itself is not a sin. And like with the finances, you can be beautiful and righteous and you can be beautiful and unrighteous. You can be plain and righteous and you can be plain and unrighteous. Beauty in and of itself is not the issue. It's one of righteousness. And so Boaz sees this character and sees this beauty and he's attracted to it. And then he does some very practical things. One, he initiates conversation with her. She's a foreigner, she's a stranger. Yet he comes to her and he speaks to her and he welcomes her. It's a picture of what God has done for us. We are the foreigner. We are the alien. We are the stranger. Yet God initiated love. God sent his son. God came to us. Salvation was initiated by God. And God through his son came to us and spoke to us and taught us how to live. He initiates. He speaks to her as if she's family. I love that. He calls a daughter, which would suggest he's probably a lot older than her and he calls a daughter. The words of Paul to Timothy is, treat older women as family. Treat younger women as family. Treat older men as family. Treat younger men as family. He says, daughter. Do you know what a thrill it is for me as I get older? And, I, and I, I welcome my age and I welcome my future, which means I'm only going to get older. Because this is what I love as I get older, is incredible sons and daughters in my world. I mean, I was watching Kelly up here and I'm in love with Kelly. Kelly, to me, is just such a beautiful girl. And it's so wonderful to have such a pure love toward her. I consider Kel one of my daughters. I really do. I love her on a par that I love my own kids. And I love that. And I feel that way about many, many people in this church and it's such a privilege to be leading people that you love so much and that really have become family. Many of you have got into my heart and under my skin and I just can't let you. I just, I just, it's not that I have to pray for you. I just find I pray for you. It's not, oh, I've got to pray for them. I just something just something that happens. And I hope that we can hang around long enough, each and every one of us, where we get to this place where you know firsthand what I'm talking about. Oh, it's a prayer of mine that everyone would have this, what I'm talking about. Have this, what we see in Boaz's life, this incredible love. To have Drew on our staff and recently come off our staff, but to have him up the river with us and and have him hosting the meeting, it doesn't change anything. My kids study different things at school and, and as they get older they have different jobs, I'm sure, but it's got nothing to do with the affection I feel towards them. I don't love them more or less because they're on staff or not. It's got nothing to do with it. The trouble is people expose their colour and nature and heart by, oh, I suppose and, and they try to put things, people have tried to put things on Drew and they've tried to put things on me. Oh, I suppose it's different now. It's different in the sense I don't see as much of him because I don't work with him, but it's got nothing to do with the way I feel about him. And you need to catch that. And as a church, we've got to break that stupid thinking. He has to skulk around now for the rest of his days because he's not in What a stupid thought. I wouldn't want that for my kids and I wouldn't want it for him. I wouldn't want it for anybody. And often what happens because of how we're feeling, we project that and think that others are thinking that and actually it's just in us. And although Drew's not working on staff anymore, I would say that we're... Probably closer. It was an incredible time for him to be able to come up for the short period of time that he did because he's part of it. Kelly was with us the whole time because it doesn't change anything. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope we can go beyond our last name and embrace the wider family, the body of Christ. That's my prayer. He prays for her. May the Lord repay you, he says. May the Lord bless you richly. Ladies, you you and a man who's going to pray for you. He provides for her. He says, whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink. He treats her as a guest. If you're visiting here this morning, you are so welcome here. And if you are thirsty, and if you are hungry, please go to our welcome lounge, and and we will feed you, and we'll bless you, and we want to get to know you. You are welcome here. I don't care what your background is, you are are welcome here. He protects her. He orders the men not to bother her. In other words, he went up to the men and said, see that girl over there? Don't touch her. And I feel that way about the girls in our church. Guys, see these girls over here? Don't touch them. He says, don't touch her. And so he protects, I I feel obligated to protect the girls and the ladies in our church. Chivalry should not be dead. I believe that men should stand up for women. And I believe women should humble themselves and sit down and stop fighting men. (laughs) Just a word for thought, just putting it out there. I'll be honest, sometimes you ladies make it hard for men to be men. You stand up, you do the right thing, and you get told, What are you saying? Are you saying I'm weak? I'm I'm, I'm just saying, Sit down. (laughs) So he protects her. He offers her a sense of community. He says, I want you to stay here. Don't glean anywhere else. I can't protect you outside of my protection. I have a sphere of influence here. I can protect you in this sphere of influence. So stay here and stay with the girls. He gives her a sense of community. This is what God does for every Christian a sense of community, the local church. Yeah, it. it's true. It's true. And there's safety in community. Do you know, yesterday, Mitchie got to play a grand final challenge cup, and I know other guys are, and, and they've gone on to win, like Mitchie did yesterday, and so congratulations to all of you. But what I loved, I said, Mitch, who would you like to come and watch you? And he had obviously his mates. But the people he wanted to come and watch him was amazing. He said, I want Benno there, so I text Benno and I text Mick and Drew. He's eleven years of age, and these are the people he wanted. And so we're going through all this list, and Maddie would be great, and this and that, and Maddie Dwyer would be good. And so I'm making all these texts. He said, I'd love Carly Hudson to be there. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Carly. and many of the guys because of late notice couldn't make it but he had about 40 people there do you know what that said to every other family member in that team no one else had that many people not many no one else had that n- number and that diversity with that many tattoos I'm like, I've got to get a tattoo. I was just feel so out of it. It's just like, all these guys It's like, you're kidding me? 30, 40 people coming out to watch an 11 year old. It's not in the way, it's out of the way. Last minute notice, and they came. It's precious. Remember that when, hey, there might be a little bit of disciplining going on in your life because of the local church, there may be a little bit of stretching going on in your life because of the local church. Put it all in context and you'll see. The church at its worst is better than the world at its best. Yeah, come on. We ran into someone while we was at the soccer, an old friend of mine. I haven't seen her for 20 years. She was a photographer at our wedding. And just before we knew it, we was talking about a number of things. And, and she was like, oh man, religion scares me. Church scares me. And Jordan just came up and said, this is my daughter and you wouldn't know her. I said, Jordan, is church scary or is it fun? She said, it's fun, I love church. What what an incredible privilege for our young ones to be brought up in an environment where church isn't scary, but it's fun and they love it and enjoy it. What I also love is that there's no strings attached. Ruth says to him, what, what? this is cool, but why are you being so kind to me? What's the catch? Does Boaz want to sleep with her? Does Boaz want to take advantage of her? No, according to the scripture, Boaz tells her in no uncertain terms. I just want to bless you. I want to reward you for what you have done for your mother-in-law no catch no catch not doing this as a stepping stone to get her in a bed guys listen up don't put on your best side with the agenda and motive to get someone in the sack don't do it not to God's precious children don't do it just do it because they're precious in God's sight just do it because It's the right thing to do. For me, that's what being righteous is all about. It's about doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And Ruth says, you have comforted me. Because she knows she's undeserving. And we're going to look a little bit more about this relationship as it blossoms into the story but I think there's enough for us to digest in and of that. So Boaz models worship at work, wisdom in his wealth, love without lust, and the last thing is he models the practical with the providential. Says did a great job last week talking about the providence of God. The providence of God is just those coincidental incredibly uncanny timings of God. We see that Ruth just so happens, she could have gone to any field, but she just so happens to go to a particular field. Unbeknownst to her, it just so happens to be the right one because a man by the name of Boaz owns it. And it's all part of God's cunning plan to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Naomi. She doesn't know that. She just goes, um, eeny, meeny, miny. Ah, oh, this one will do. God is so incredible. I mean, even if you went eeny, meeny, miny, moe and you land up on the wrong one, God has a way of just flicking things around. He'll move the fields. He'll do whatever. She's got the wrong field. Hey, Naomi, look over there. He does that. He does that. Like those cups. He does that. Dad tells a story how he was driving uh, away from him. He had this, this gut feel to go to a guy's house he knew. And, 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 and all of a sudden something came out. And he, nah, he dismissed it. No, I'm not going to go there. Something runs out in front of the car. He turns the car to miss this, whatever it was, going up on the street where this guy lives. Okay, Lord, I get it. You want me to be there. Knocks on the door. The guy answers the door. He said, oh, wow. What are you doing here? says, I don't know. I just feel to be here. He goes, come here. He says, there's a stove, there's the pills. I was just about to kill myself. I mean, like, but God, the providence of God. But coupling the providence of God, the, the only God can do moments, is this man who's practically at work with God. Practically at work with him. You see, God saved Ruth and blessed her through his invisible hand of providence. However, it was made visible through the practical hand of Boaz. I don't know what your theology is, whether you're a once saved, always saved kind of guy, or whether you're I can lose your salvation kind of guy. I don't care what your end time theology is, whether you believe uh, whatever. What I do believe is that God's providence needs hands on earth. And it is a voice on earth. And it is a heart on earth. And we see Boaz is a man who marries the practical with the providential. God led Ruth to the land of Boaz. We see that over and over again, just as it happened. Not only did she get into the field that belonged to Boaz, on the day she decides to go, Boaz just happens to be riding in. On his white horse. Just, at the, just then, on the day she's there. Maybe he did it every day, I don't know. But maybe he only came once a month. Maybe he only visited the... I don't know. But I do know that just as Ruth was there, Boaz shows up. But then it was Boaz who practically cared for her. It wasn't God who said, you can glean here. It wasn't God who said, hey boys, stay away. That was Boaz. That was the hand of God at work, seen and fleshed out in the hand of man. So I don't know what your theology is, but it does not excuse you from getting involved. Your theology should never be excused to not get involved. We need our musicians to come, please. We're going to move into a time of communion just very quickly. And before we go in a song as the elements are distributed, I want to leave you with this thought by way of conclusion. That like Ruth... Who was a Moabite outcast and undeserving of Boaz's favor? So are you and I when it comes to the things of God. We, like Ruth, are outcasts, undeserving of God's great favor. But just like Boaz, get this, comes to Ruth and rescues her and provides for her. So Jesus came to earth and rescues us and provides for us. Jesus is our Boaz. He's our knight in shining armour. He, like Boaz, will one day ride on a white horse and come and wipe away every tear and heal every sickness and cast out every pain. I believe God heals today. And yet we've buried many people in their sickness. But the Bible says, whether He heals us on planet earth or He heals us ever, one day we shall be healed. One day we will be made whole. But not because of our hard work and effort and energy, but because of our Boaz, Jesus, who comes and rescues us. You know, Ruth could have gleaned and gleaned and gleaned, but without the favour of God. Without the favour of Boaz, she would have walked herself into an early grave. It's always a both end. It's God in his love and initiative coming. But we must respond. Ruth humbles herself before this man, Boaz, and says, what have I done to deserve such favour? She didn't say, I don't need your charity. What are you saying about us women? We can't do it ourselves. She she just humbles herself. And Christianity, as I've said many times before, essentially is for weak people that can humble themselves enough to let Jesus in. There's going to be all types of people in heaven, but there will not be one proud person They'll be tall, they'll be short, they'll be fat, they'll be thin, they'll be dark, they'll be yellow, white, light. All colours, all shapes, all nations, but there will not be one proud person. Only the humble will get to heaven. And as we partake in communion this morning, it's a chance for every Christian to humble themselves and say, Thank you, Jesus. For every non-Christian, it's an opportunity for you to humble yourself and to invite him into your heart. And we count it a privilege and an honour to celebrate with you that decision because it will be the best decision you ever make. Will you please stand with me this morning? This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen and God bless.